Hey friends, before we get started today, I just wanted to give you a heads up that our friends at Dracaena Wines are offering you, our loyal listeners, 10% off your order on their website. Visit dracaenawines.com and use the promo code Josiology at checkout. I personally would recommend their Cabernet Franc, but of course, feel free to try anything that looks appealing to you on their website. This offer expires August 31st, 2020, so don't hesitate to check out their website today. Enjoy. Josie DeVidio is a woman on a mission to explore the human experience with a passion to bring entertaining and informative content to your ears. Real talk, real people. This is Josiology. Hey friends, welcome back to Josiology. I'm your host, Josie DeVidio. And today I'm excited to have Lori Budd back on Josiology. Lori was our guest on episode 14, which was a bonus episode about wine. And she helped us choose wine for our holiday parties back then. And we had such a good time. In fact, that episode, I had a glass of wine during the interview. And I was so bummed because today I am not able to do that. But that would have been super fun to go ahead and do again. Oh, but she does. Good on you, Lori. Good (laughs) on you. So today I wanted to bring her back because after the last episode, Of course, I had a thousand other questions and I had listeners asking me questions. So I wanted to bring Lori back today to ask her all of these questions. And if you guys have any other questions after this episode, of course, submit them to me either through the Josiology Podcast Facebook page or I'm on Instagram at Josiology Podcast. Or of course, you can email me Josie at Josiology.com. Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. I'm so excited. So Lori and her husband are owners of Dracaena Wines in Paso Robles, California, which is basically, if you're not from California, it's about maybe three hours north of Santa Barbara and three hours south of San Francisco, give or take some. And during the last episode, I was drinking a glass of their Cab Franc, which I absolutely loved. So if you are interested in exploring some new wines, I would urge you to check out their website, dracaenawines.com. Yep. And that's spelled D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A, wines.com. And since that, that wine you were drinking won the California Cab Franc competition. We got best of show for all California Cab Franc. That is awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. It's well-deserved. So I have like a potpourri of other questions about wine. And these are questions that you're too afraid to ask because you don't want to come off sounding dumb. But the beauty of knowing you, Lori, is I can ask you dumb questions and you (laughs) will teach me because you are a scientific person and can give me the explanations that my scientific mind wants to hear. So the first question I have is about aerating wine. You know, when you go to a restaurant, they'll open a wine for you and then they pour like a little bit in your glass and then they like have you taste it. And, you know, none of us know what we're doing. We all taste it. I have never seen anyone say, no, this is terrible. Give me another bottle. (laughs) So, (laughs) well, yeah, because you're, you know, you're the expert. But 
it kind of got me thinking like, is it even when they do that at a restaurant, is it even aerated enough or is it even enough time to know what the wine truly tastes like? Because when I have wine at home, you know, you open the bottle and then you let it sit open for a little while or you pour it in your glass and then I'm usually cooking. So then it's kind of just sitting out there getting aerated naturally. But do we need to aerate wine and why? Okay. So You actually have like two different questions there. The first one is when the sommelier or the waiter comes and pours that wine for you, they are just asking you, first of all, you should be checking that what you ordered is what they're giving you because that doesn't necessarily always hold true because they're not updating their menu very frequently and they might have changed the vintage or Mike and I were out the other day and I ordered a Gewurztraminer and he brought me a Riesling. And, you know, I was like, uh, not the same thing, same producer, but not the same wine. So that's the first thing you want to check that the label is what you are getting in terms of the vintage, unless it's something that, you know, is a major, you know, vintage, you know, for an average person, a 16 versus a 17 versus an 18, it's not really going to matter. So I wouldn't be so concerned about the vintage. But when they're pouring that little bit into your glass, all they're asking you to taste is whether or not it's corked. And cork, if anybody has ever experienced cork, you know, it is ingrained in their brain of what cork really is. And the best way that we can explain cork is if you take cardboard, like corrugated cardboard, and you wet it and you let it sit outside for a couple of days. (laughs) So it gets all, you know, yucky and meshy. And then you smell it. That smell is what cork is. So that's really all they're asking you for. They are not asking you whether you like it or you don't like it. At that point, you've ordered it. So you can't or you shouldn't turn it away if you just don't like the taste of it. All they're asking is if it's corked. That's why they're pouring you that. So meaning like when this bottle of wine was corked at the winery, that it was corked properly and there's like no funkiness going on in the bottle, basically. Correct. That it was sealed properly and made its journey to your table without any other issues. Correct. There's a compound called TCA, and that is what is responsible for corking a bottle. And once it's in there, you know, it's obvious, you know, as soon as you put that smell to that bottle you will always remember what a corked wine smells like. So that's why he or she is pouring that for you there. Now, aerating is a whole other thing. Not every wine should be aerated. More delicate wines, you can actually ruin the wine by aerating it, by allowing too much oxygen in. What qualifies as a delicate wine? Like you mean variety or? Yeah, um, you know, kind of gets into that realm of what you like, what you don't like. But delicate wine would be, you know, like a Bordeaux is a big wine that you're going to aerate. Burgundy, not so much, you know. With us, you know, like Pinot Noirs are more of a delicate wine than a Cabernet Sauvignon. So last time we talked about that tannin structure, that, you know, that stuff that, that feels like sandpaper on your tongue that dries out your mouth, that tannin, the more tannin there is, that's why you want to airy is because that kind of helps to soften it. It helps to open up the aromas for you and it kind of softens those tannins a bit. So it's really up to have what you want out of that wine, whether you should aerate it or not. But, you know, if you are a collector, there are certain wines that you do not 
decant. And then an average person is literally buying a bottle of wine today and drinking it tonight or tomorrow. Those wines don't necessarily need to be aerated either because those wines are purchased to be drunk right away. You know, the aeration tends to deal with more of the collectors, the older bottles, not super old, but older bottles of wine that are big in tannin structure. So it sounds like you don't really need to aerate white wines or rosés. Is that correct? I am not aware of anybody who aerates a rosé. The aerating of a white, you can. It's, you know, certain wines, it's not going to harm it. But I think it's more important that people are drinking their wine at the correct temperature than the aerating the wine. And I think the aerating of a white, most people are pulling that white out of the refrigerator and pouring it into their glass. And then it's, it's really too cold to really be appreciating what that wine can offer. Now, that may be how you like it, so go ahead and drink it. But as the wine warms up a bit, it's going to start to release more aromas. You're going to get a bigger profile of what that wine was supposed to be trying to give. You kind of like ungagged it once it warms up. And when you're aerating it, it's not so much the aeration that the temperature starts to come to where you should be drinking it. So I do have a bunch of questions about temperatures too, but I'll get to that in a second. Okay. So when you open the bottle and you are going to aerate it, you can either let it sit in the bottle or you can decant it. Like there's actual bottles that you would pour your bottle of wine into some other bottle. And I've also seen these little like stopper things you put in your bottle that aerate the wine as you pour it out. Is there any benefit to one or the other? I think it's more ADHD. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So in traditional decanting is pouring it into another vessel. Okay. Okay. And the reason why we pour it into another vessel is because as you're pouring it into the other vessel, you are kind of being rough with that wine and the oxygen is getting into the wine as it's pouring. And then it goes into the decanter and it sits. If you just open a bottle and you leave it on the counter, it's not really going to aerate very much because you haven't stirred up that wine at all. So if if you're just going to aerate within or let it breathe in the bottle, pour yourself a glass so that there's some stirring of the wine in there. And as you pour the bottle, the air is getting in that open gap. And now you're allowing some air in. If you're just opening a bottle, it's really tough for the air to penetrate surface tension, basically. And the thing is, people spend hundreds... I mean, there's decanters out there that are hundreds of dollars, probably thousands of dollars. I mean, there's very elaborate decanters. They all do exactly the same thing. So you don't necessarily need to go out and buy a decanter. You know, if you've ever received flowers in the vase that, you know, the flowers come in, there's your decanter. Just Mm -hmm. make sure it's clean. But there's your decanter. You know, a water pitcher, there's your decanter. You know, it's not the most pretty thing in the world, but it's doing its job. You don't have to purchase a specific decanter to decant wine. As for the things that go on or in the bottle, that's what I'm referring to as the ADHD. Oh my gosh, I can't sit there and wait an hour for my wine to decant. Right. I'm going to put this aerator in my bottle and I'm going to pour it, or I'm going to put my aerator in my glass and pour it through it. And it's doing the same thing glass by glass versus an entire bottle. Got it. All right. That clears up a lot of things because I always thought, am I supposed to be decanting this? (laughs) 
what am I supposed to do with this? Because, you know, over the years, I've collected gadgets for, as gifts. And, yeah. and some of those things are aerators. And I'm like, am I supposed to be using these? What are these for? So good. You've cleared that up for me. Thank you very much. Think of it as softening the wine. That's what it's going to do. So if you take a, if you take a Cabernet and it's so tannic, it's so drying on your mouth, if you decant it for an hour or so, it's going to soften up and it's going to be a little bit silkier. Got it. So yeah, as time goes on, it just releases more of its natural essence. Yes. But you know, for every good, there's a bad, it can go too far too. So if you leave it in the decanter too much, you've now lost, you know, it's like that bell curve, you know, it's all right, this wine isn't as great as it can be. We're going to aerate it. Oh, this is really, really good. And now it's not good anymore. Right. Well, then that brings up the question, how do you store wine that you didn't finish, which I know is rare, <laughs> but occasionally you don't finish wine. So you have these um, little plugs with the pump that you put in the bottle that you can kind of suck the air out. Is that the best way to store unfinished wine? That's pretty much what I use 90% of the time. A little vacuum seal, it sucks it out. It's cheap. It's like nine bucks or whatever. It's reusable. So, you know, it's great. There are other devices out there. Um, There's a product called Repore, which has basically, it looks like a big cork, but it's got proprietary blend of herbs in there, I guess. So it's like a desiccant and it adsorbs the oxygen out there. There's another one that takes the air. It's like a little can and you pump the argon into it. And that's like $9 a can. And it it works for like, I don't know, like 40 bottles. And then what that does is create, because the argon is heavy, it creates a blanket on the top surface of the wine so that the air, the oxygen can't penetrate it. And then you just use your own cork you know, the cork from the bottle and you put it in. There's a whole bunch of different things out there that you can use. Uh, Some wines really, depending on the tannic structure, like this, what I'm drinking, I opened this yesterday and this is a Superave from the country of Georgia. It's a high tannin wine. I just popped the cork back in it because yesterday it was pretty tannic. Right. And today it's beautiful. Right, right, right. So I allowed it to basically decant overnight. So how long do you have before the wine goes bad? You opened it yesterday. You're drinking it today. Let's say you you weren't going to drink it today, but you're going to drink it in two or three days from now. Depending on that structure of the wine, this wine probably would have lasted like three or four days. And it probably would even taste better tomorrow than it does today. Hmm. because that tannic structure was pretty strong. It really depends. It depends on the temperature that you're holding it at. Uh, You know, mine is just sitting on a shelf. If you stick it in a refrigerator, that slows it down so you can keep it in there a little bit longer, but then that could cause a whole other problem. You know, so it really depends wine by wine or variety by variety. But I would say if you opened a bottle, the less wine that's in there, the faster you kind of have to finish it. Okay. It's been exposed to more air. Correct. So basically it's almost like a volatile compound. You exactly. only have so much time to work with it, right? Exactly. So bottoms up people. Or if you got <laughs> the money, you can buy a Coravin, but that you're looking at at least 300 bucks 
for a Coravin. And then that's, you never open the bottle. Oh, is that the thing where you stick like a needle through the cork and yeah, yeah, and the pour your wine out of it? Yeah, so the needle goes into the cork, you push the button, the argon gas goes in to the bottle as the wine comes out of the needle, and you never open the cork. Now, they say that can last months and months and months, like years almost. I've never had it last it. Not that it doesn't last that long. I've just drank it before. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. You didn't, you didn't complete the study. Right. Yes. That's what <laughs> we use when I go to a restaurant to pour my wine for somebody. That's what I use. Because if I was going to open a bottle of Dracaena every time I poured for a restaurant or poured for a store, I would go through so many bottles. Right. So we use a Coravin if I'm going to pour for a sales call. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I think I've seen those on TV. I think they have an infomercial or something at three in the morning. So let's talk about uh, how to store wine when you bring it home from a market or a winery. When you get your wine home, what are the guidelines for storing red wine versus white wines or champagne or, you know, rosés? All right. So again, the majority of people purchase wine and drink it within 48 to 72 hours. So there's no storage whatsoever. It doesn't matter, you know, for the most part what it is. But if you're going to buy a bottle and hold on to it, the biggest thing you need to remember is not to change the temperature dramatically. So yes, if you have a wine cooler, that's wonderful. If you have a basement that stays cool, that's fantastic. But you don't need to do that. You just don't want ebbs and flows of temperature. You don't want it to be 70 degrees and then 40 degrees. You know, if you're looking in an ideal world, 50 to 60 is ideal to keep them in and so that they stay there. We're talking Fahrenheit, 50 and 60 degree Fahrenheit. Like if you have a fridge, because we have a little wine fridge and you can set the settings on there. And I have no idea what it's set at that my husband handled that. But you're saying in those wine fridges... Right. 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit is safe for both white and red and sparkling. That's the safe zone. Got it. But again, if it goes, if it's 65 degrees, it's not going to kill the wine. All that does is age the wine faster. So if you were able to drink it for 10 years, maybe you're drinking it in nine years now. You want to lie it down. If you're really going to store it, you want to lie it down so that the cork is getting wet so that it doesn't dry up and get brittle. You want to keep it away from direct light, um, whether it's sunlight or regular lighting, because regular lighting has heat. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to keep it by that. And you you obviously, my brother killed me. He keeps his wine above his his stove. You know, I'm like, (laughs) get it away from that. You know, you you don't want to store it by your stove. Right. You don't want to store it in a cabinet that's got maybe baseboard heat behind it because that cabinet's going to get hot. And that's, again, the ebbs and the flows uh, of the temperature. Right. The the one that people don't really think about is you don't want to keep it where there's a lot of vibrations. So, I mean, not that I know anybody who's putting wine on top of a washing machine or a draw, you know, whatever, but wherever it is, if there's a lot of vibrations, that can really upset the wine also. So constant temperature, away from direct heat or light and away from vibrations and you're kind of safe. 
why don't the market store it this way? Because when you buy wine at a market, it's all, you know, standing tall. It's not on its side and most of it's not refrigerated. It's just on the shelf. I mean, I guess the temperature in the market is probably constant. But we don't know how long those bottles have been sitting there. You don't. And they're stored upright because they take up less room upright. Right. So that is, that's why it's stored upright. And again, if you're going into, you know, a, a Vons or a Save Mart or something, that wine is being turned over so quickly that, again, all you're really doing is cutting the life expectancy of the wine. Long term. Right. You're not really ruining the wine. Heat can ruin the wine. Cold can ruin the wine. But standing upright, how fast those wines turn over, it's not really going to make a difference. And the store stays a basic temperature. So you're not seeing extreme heats or extreme cold. So it's okay. You know, and it's not sitting on a shelf long enough that that cork's going to dry out. Why don't wineries make smaller bottles of wine? Oh, we do. Some of us do. Uh, so there's 375s out there. Yeah, because that would be nice to be able to open up, you know, a half a bottle instead of a full bottle and not feel this, you know, pressure to drink the whole thing, you know. But yeah, I am noticing some brands are making half bottles, but they're just as expensive as the full bottle. So then I'm like, well, I might as well buy the full bottle because I'm thrifty that way. Okay, so it's all a cost thing. I have to pay as my winery, I have to pay to create this label. Labels are not cheap, so I have to pay for the label. If I'm doing a 375, I'm paying for a different label because a 750 label isn't fitting on a 375. So that's doubling my cost of the labels. Also, when I go through a bottling line, uh, that requires a readjustment of the label of the bottling line. So when I'm bottling, I'm going to have to bottle all of my 750s, stop production, change around my bottling line, which costs money and costs time, and then start the 375s. Right. If I'm buying glass, I'm now cutting down the number of my 750s, which is going to increase my per bottle cost because I'm buying less of them. And I have to now buy 375s, which are more money to start off with. And then because I'm not buying as many, that cost goes up. So it's really just a cost effectiveness thing. Right. But you can probably get the gallows, the, you know, the big bulk wines are going to have 375s and the dessert wines come in 375, but the dessert wines aren't making 750s. So Right, right, right. So it's basically production cost. Yeah. Speaking of which, what's up with wine in a box? Like what's that <laughs> all about? <laughs> Uh, wine in a box, wine in a can. Right. You know what? Again, I, as I say, I will never tell you what to drink, but wine in a box actually has some benefits uh, in terms of the, you know, the Chardonnay mom or whatever that wants a glass a night. The way the pack is inside that box, it basically compresses in on itself as they take glass by glass. And it actually makes it more difficult for it to get bad, you know? Yeah, because it's like a bladder inside, right? Exactly, exactly. So you're not over-oxidizing it, and it, it actually does allow that wine to sit and last a lot longer. So it's definitely a benefit that way. I don't know any high-quality wine that makes it in a box. I do know there's a winery in Paso that makes 
bag wine. So basically ignore the box and he makes what's in the box. He makes a bag and it's kind of like his joke, but it's actually good wine. He puts really good wine in it. Mm -hmm. And there's a story of a cowboy. I don't know the whole story or I don't remember it, but there's, there's a reason why he makes it. He makes it like, you know, the saddlebags that used to be Wild Wild West. That's what it looks like. It's just a bulk thing. And you can buy a lot of wine for not a lot of money. Um, Again, the production of making that is a cheaper production. So there it's cheaper for them to make the wine, which means it's cheaper for you to buy the wine. Sure. Yeah. And so those single serving wine cans, I mean, they look like, you know, beer cans, but they have wine in them. Does that change the way the wine tastes because they're in this metallic container? I think that depends on who's actually tasting it. Even when I have a wine in a can, I don't drink it out of the can. I will pour it into glass and kind of let it settle a bit in the glass. I'm sensitive to it. So I do think it tastes different. But in all in complete disclosure, I've never done a blind of it. So I don't know if if it's here, you know, in my mind, but there, you know, there's a winery in Paso that makes exceptional wines and cans, and I would have absolutely no problem buying it and drinking it. I just pour it in a glass. Speaking of glasses, I have questions about those too. All right. So why are wine glasses certain shapes? You know, like you can buy red wine glasses, white wine glasses, champagnes, you know, there's flutes for those. Why? Uh, So actually, if you really want to get sophisticated, there's Pinot Noir glasses. Like this is a Pinot Noir glass. See how it's got the, it's, it's got the ridge here. Uh There's champagne flutes, there's champagne coupes, there's champagne stemless, you know, So you can actually buy Syrah glasses for each variety that's out there. Riedel pretty much makes like, I don't know, like 200 different types of glasses. So depending on how geeky you want to get, there's a glass out there for you. First of all, wine tastes different in crystal versus glass. So if you have a thick uh, and never mind plastic. Just don't, just don't do plastic. But <laughs> just stop it. Stop the madness. Stop no it. wine and plastic glasses. <laughs> <laughs> the the thickness of the glass will have an impact on it, and the quality of the glass. So, like crystal, if you do a side by side of any wine, crystal versus non crystal, you are. And I think anybody can taste the difference. It just the the quality of the glass makes a difference. But the shape of the glass. Each glass is made to basically allow you to get the most aroma out of it. So, you know, for years, everyone was like, oh, you know, it's so, you know, you toast champagne in a flute. A flute is really kind of the worst. It's not, well, I don't want to say worst, but it's not a good glass to drink champagne out of because all you're doing is getting, you know, everything is so narrow, your nose can't get those aromas. But if you like the tickling nose of the bubbles, then the flute is for you. And that's why the flute came about is because as you bring your no- as you bring the glass up to your mouth to drink the champagne, all of the, the effervescence of those bubbles get in your nose and it tickles you and you giggle and it's all fun. And that's what it is. But you really want a, a coupe is really the best one. It allows the bubbles to come out and to give and then those aromas are able to come. A coupe is what I would liken to the old fashioned champagne glasses that you would see in movies from like the 30s and 40s. You are correct. Yep. (laughs) 
That is right. They had it right. Technology came and changed it. They had it right. That's what you do if you're going to do a champagne fountain. You know, you pour and the... Right, right, right. It's a coupe. You know, when when I go out, if I order any type of sparkling, I'm always like, please give it to me in a white wine glass. You know, and they look at me like I'm insane if they don't really know what's going on. But (laughs) I order my sparkling champagne, whatever, in a white wine glass because that's got a nice big nose, uh, you know, open mouth to it so that I can enjoy. I love champagne. I want to get as much of it as I can. I love the aromas. I love that yeastiness. I just love it. I want to be able to smell it. I put it in a flute. I'm not smelling it. I'll enjoy it on my palate, but I'm not getting a full exposure to it. So that's really what the glasses do. Each glass shape is designed in order to bring those aromas to the best that it can for that wine. Like I said, this is not a Pinot Noir, and I'm drinking it in a Pinot Noir glass. I just like this glass, so it tends to be my go-to red glass. Have a white wine glass, have a red wine glass. If you're only going to choose one glass, make it a little bit bigger in the opening. Now, given what we've talked about in regards to temperatures, what do you think about the stemless wine glasses? Because, you know, when you're holding a traditional wine glass, when I hold one anyway, I'm not holding it by the stem, really. I'm holding it by, you know, what I would call like the belly of the glass, the bowl. bowl. And so stemless wine glasses obviously have no stem. So you're holding it there anyway. But is it because you have more surface area of your hand on the bowl that it makes it warmer? Oh, Oh, yeah. Because as soon as you start to hold the wine part or the bowl part of the wine, your body temperature is warming that up. Now, that might be a good thing. So if I'm out tasting and they're serving me a wine that I think is too cold, I actually cup the bowl of the glass and swirl it around and I'm using my hands to warm it up. But the proper way to hold a a stem wine glass is by the stem. You're not supposed to be holding where the bowl is, where the wine is. Now, the stemless... I don't really know why stemless came around, but my thought of why stemless came around is because it's a lot more difficult to break them. Yeah, I think that's it. They're they're sturdier, you know, just to putting them down. You you know, wine glasses are tall, people knock them yeah. over, so they break the stems. You know, there's some elegant wine glasses out there that the stems are so delicate, you know, you flick them and they crack. Right. So I think the stemless came about out of being a little bit more durable. I do own some stemless wine glasses, but now if I drink out of a stemless wine glass, I'm still not holding it at the bowl. I hold the stemless up at the top of the glass so that I'm still not touching my body temperature is still not affecting the wine. Got it. Yeah. I never really thought about that. Years ago, I used to drink beer. I can't drink beer now because of the whole gluten thing, but years ago, I didn't drink beer fast enough for it to stay cold, you know, so I would nurse the beer. So over time it would get warm. And and I realized it was because I was holding it, you know, so my body temperature was heating it up. So over the years, it occurred to me that that same thing must be happening to wine if I'm holding it in a particular way. Absolutely. So back to the traditional wine bottle. Now we had talked about corking wine. And so my question is, there are, to my knowledge, three different kinds of corks. There's the traditional cork, then there's like a cellulose kind of cork that I've noticed, or a screw top. I guess that's not really a cork. But there's three ways that these wine bottles are sealed now. Do we still prefer traditional cork over the others? So there's real cork, 
Okay. And then real cork, you can buy them as a winery, you can buy them at different levels. So some cork, you can almost see this, the cellulose, or you can almost see the cells in them. They're kind of big cells. And then other ones are really, really condensed, but they're all real cork. Then there's synthetic cork. I think that's what I'm thinking of in terms of the cellulose ones. The synthetic corks are kind of on their way out. They came about because they were like, oh, you know, it's synthetic. So you're not having cork anymore. You know, you're not getting a corked bottle because it's a synthetic. But they had a whole slew of issues with other problems that they had. Plus, cork doesn't always just come from the cork itself. So they still were getting corked bottles, even though it was a synthetic. And then there's glass enclosures that you see more with Italian wines. Uh, It looks like kind of a cork, but it's just a glass topper type thing. Like it it literally looks like a top and that goes in. I love those that I think that's the best of both worlds. And then you have screw caps, different corks. They come in different lengths. They come in different sizes. They come in different quality, but that's, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm answering what you're well, I mean, I guess the like screw tops, why does one company choose one over the other? Is it another cost thing? Well, that does have a lot to do with it. Um, it also has to do with an ageability, although screw caps have come a long way in the last like five years or so. It used to be thought that, you know, if you're aging a bottle of wine, it needs to be a cork. But there's wines out there that you can that are screw cap that can be aged also. The old screw caps used to really almost let no air in, and you need some air, you know, to get in to allow for that aging to occur. But again, the technology has come a long, long way. I think it's more of a attitude um, and people's acceptance. People accept in America. People accept screw caps on rosés. People accept screw caps on Sauvignon Blancs. Chardonnay, uh, some people accept it, some people don't. In terms of the red world, I think a lot of people in the United States, and I'm not saying that it's correct, but a lot of people in the United States associate a screw cap with a cheap wine. Isn't that weird how we are? Like we'll accept like something so, I don't know. Trivial. (laughs) Trivial. And we have an opinion about it. Yeah. One of my favorite things is, um, you know, I read research articles, you know, that's how I have fun, Um, (laughs) you know, but uh, I read a research article that did uh, an experiment of people in a tasting room, uh, you know, in a tasting panel, basically, and the, they had, they were drinking wine and they were sitting in a room and in the back the people, you know, who pour the stuff for you, you know, uh, they sound affected a bottle of wine being corked open, you know, so you hear that pop. Mm -hmm. And then they came out and they poured the wine. And then they went back in and people evaluated it. And then they went in the back and they kind of screw capped it. So like, you know, you didn't hear that pop, you didn't hear that, that sound that, you know, makes us all go running. And people evaluated it, and it got rated lower. People enjoyed the the wine with cork more than the wine with the screw cap. It was the same wine. So in America, it's very much a mindset of cork is good, you know, or is a higher quality screw cap is a lower quality. Why are we so easily manipulated by that kind of stuff? I don't know because you go, to, you go to New Zealand, you go to Australia, 
and they're screw capping $200 bottles of wine, $300 bottles of wine. They're screw capping it. Right. It's us. <laughs> yeah. You know, which goes back to what we were talking about in the episode we recorded for season one, which is just drink what you like. You know, yep. it doesn't matter what if it comes in a can or a bottle or a box or a, a Western bladder. It doesn't matter right. if it's got a, a cork or a screw cap. If you taste it and you like it, just drink it. Right. Because like, why get caught up in all this crazy psychology of, you know, nonsense, really? Right. It's the sound. People enjoy that sound. Yeah, they have that association like with a celebration or something. Pavlov's dog. Yep. Okay, so we have brought up rosé a bunch this episode. So my question is, what in the heck is rosé? Is this like a red grape? Is it a white grape? Is it like a combo of those two? Or is it its own variety? Like I have no idea what rosé is. So you actually kind of hit a lot of what rosé is. So there are three ways to make rosé. The first one very, very rarely is done, but is done in France in some aspects. It is mixing red and white wine, but that is not the norm. Although, like I said, in France, there are some regions that that is how they make rosé. But the two main ways to make a rosé is either by called direct press or saigné. And a direct press means that the person, and that's how we make our rosé, we go out and we harvest our Syrah, which is a red grape. So to answer that question, rosé comes from a red grape or a purple grape. I harvest my Syrah and I harvest it at a different bricks level, different sugar level, and I'm bringing it in and then I am pressing it and I am allowing that juice to stay in contact with the skin. And the skin is where all of the color comes from. Mm. So I'm allowing the juice to stay in contact with that skin for like eight hours. And then I'm pulling the skins off of it. And that's where I'm getting that pinkish hue, that salmon color. And then that's it. Those grapes are done. They go back to the vineyard as compost. Like they're done. I don't make a Syrah out of those grapes. Got it. So that's a direct press. A sanye is a bleed. So a sanye means that, so go back to the Syrah grapes. If I was doing a sanye, I would be taking Syrah and I would be picking it at the bricks level that I want my red wine to be at. Okay. And then I'm making my red wine and I'm going to just bleed off some of the juice from my red wine. And I'm going to make my rose out of that bleeding juice. And what that does is make my red Syrah a little deeper because now I have less juice with more skin contact. So um, my Syrah is going to get bigger in color and I've got in kind of a byproduct of the Syrah is my rosé. So I'm getting two wines from one pick. So then when you, we have red wine, the color that it is, is because the juice has been sitting with the skin for an extended amount of time. Exactly. So there's only, and I don't quote me, three grape varieties of which Separave is one of them, that the pulp is red. Yeah, because all grape pulp is clear typically. Right. Yeah. So I think there's only three. It might be four varieties, but the pulp is white. So I could make I could make Cabernet Franc that's white. I would just take my Cab Franc, press it, and take that juice immediately out, and my Cab Franc would be white. Interesting. That could be a good marketing uh, gimmick for you, like naked wine. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tastes the same, but isn't color. I would love to make a white cab franc. I think down the road, there will definitely be a white cab franc because we are such cab franc freaks. But right now it's a little cost prohibitive because I'm, you know, I'd be picking grapes at a certain price. I would have to charge what I'm charging for my cab franc for a white. And, you know, people see white wine as lower price than. Right, right, right. As opposed to a specialty item. Correct. Yeah. Right. So then Chardonnays and uh, Sauvignon Blancs, how come those are more golden color? Because those grapes are not golden. They're green. Correct. Um, it's just the as the pulp comes in, they're still getting in contact. So have you heard of orange wine? No. Okay. So our orange wine is actually thought to be the actual original wine out there. And it's golden orange. It's just the amount of time that it sees on the skin. So if I took a Chardonnay and left it on those skins for a longer period of time, it would start to turn golden and then ultimately orange and things like that. You know, there's Sauvignon Blancs that are crystal clear. There's Chardonnay that are crystal clear. The ones that you're seeing that golden color, those are those butter bombs. Those are yeah. the Ron Bowers. Those are, you know, those are the oak enhanced. You know, if you're taking a steel Chardonnay, it's straw color. It's clear. But the oak influenced is also changing that, is changing that wine. Interesting. Okay. We had talked about in the last episode, the difference between a vineyard and a winery and that an estate winery basically meant that the winery had its own vineyard on either its own property or at another location. But the estate winery uh, market or brand is that it uses its own grapes. Correct. Can it use other people's grapes? Like, can it buy, like, I'm going to use predominantly my own grapes for my estate wine, but I kind of like their variety over there. Can I go purchase some of that and add or no? I can't call it estate if I'm purchasing fruit. I can have bottle A be estate and bottle B not be a state, I can do that. But a state is a state. Okay. Sometimes you'll have a bottle of wine and it seems to be when it's a really old bottle of wine where there's sediment in the wine. So if we could talk about that a little bit, what is the sediment and is this a bad thing? What does it signify? It's diamonds. It's wine (laughs) diamonds. So it's tartaric acid is what it is. It's just, you know, as the wine settles, the acid crystals settle out of the wine. And that's what you're getting on the bottom of the glass. That's the sediment. It could also be that it was an unfiltered wine, you know, so it it could be that. But 99% of the time, it's just simply tartaric acid. And it's perfectly fine. If you're seeing it in a white, it means that it wasn't cold stabilized. So it meant that if you're seeing it in a white, it meant that saw some cold, the wine was in the refrigerator or something. So it's not not necessarily a bad thing. Nope. It's part of wine. It just, over time, it starts to settle out. And with, you know, if it's cold, it will start to settle out faster. Okay. So now we're down to the last question. Uh, Amongst all of these, I'm too afraid to ask wine questions. (laughs) All right. So the question is, what is a sommelier? (laughs) I mean, I think everyone thinks they know what it is, but they can't really explain it. They just know it's like the wine guy. And what is the difference between a sommelier and a winemaker? Oh, that's a big difference. Okay. All right. So uh, a winemaker is 
I make wine. Anybody can be a winemaker. You know, we went to school to learn how to make wine. Some people do it in their garage. They're winemakers. So if you take grapes and you ferment them, congratulations, you're a winemaker. Uh, Sommelier is somebody who, uh, and again, there's really no legal definition of uh, of a sommelier. You don't need an education to be a sommelier. Like you don't need to get all of those certifications. You don't need to go to the master's guild. You don't need to do that. But what those certifications do is make you stand out from the thousands of other wine lovers out there that their dream job is to work in the wine industry. But in order to be called a sommelier, basically all you need to do is be responsible for somebody's wine. That's it. A sommelier basically focuses in on hospitality. So there are the people who are at the restaurants and they are, you know, they'll come to your table, they will talk to you and they will give wine suggestions. They could be the people who are responsible for choosing that wine list and putting that wine list together. And just as a museum curator has a theme, you know, has some sort of big picture at the museum of why they're picking which pieces of art to go where and to which room, the sommelier is doing the same thing with wine. They're choosing these wines because there's something about these wines that in their brain works together some way, somehow, like like a museum. Uh, and if you are going to the, you know, Court of Master Sommeliers, or if you're going through that schooling, then they're teaching you, you know, there's the the correct way to pour. Who gets the glass? You know, who do you pour first to? Do you go left? Do you go right? Do the women get it first? Do the men get it first? You know, that's what they're learning if they go to school to be a sommelier. They should know regions of wine. But again, you can learn that on your own, right? You can go out and you you can buy Jancis Robinson's Oxford Dictionary of Wine and you can read that 2000 page book. And <laughs> right. know just as much as a sommelier does. They're more focused on the etiquette of how to serve the wine. So when a restaurant has a sommelier and they come to your table, is this like a person you're supposed to tip afterwards? Is this just oh. like part of the service of a restaurant? Oh, wow. You know, I have never tipped a sommelier, um, although I've never really had one go out and about like that. It's normally he comes and I just tip within the same, you know, tip like I, I would tip. And I think I've always assumed that they get the tip with the waiter. I've never actually handed somebody an actual tip to his hand. They normally come, they talk and they're gone. Right. I don't know how you would physically tip them unless you hunted them down and handed it to them. Thinking of a couple of the restaurants in New York that we've been to, and I don't know, we, we just tip the waiter. <laughs> right. I, I don't know if that's right or wrong. I honestly don't. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, no one, no one, I don't think anybody knows. Maybe a sommelier knows, but nobody. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he's, a, he or she is expecting a tip. I think that's part of their job. And I'm going to probably, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say they're getting a percentage of that waiters, just as the busboy is getting a percentage. And I'm sure there's a cut of that. Right. All right. Awesome. Lori, thank you so much for joining me again today on the Josiology podcast and sharing your expertise. Um, obviously, the listeners can tell that you are an expert in this field. So if they want to learn more, and I do believe that they should, they should <laughs> tune into your podcast, which is called Exploring the Wine Glass. 
And you guys can find that on any podcast listening app. She also does this cool segment called Wine Fabet Street, where she covers the different varieties of wine. I have a, a colleague of mine um, who who is a certified wine specialist, Debbie Giaquindo, who is known as the HV Wine Goddess. And she and I co-host it. And we alternate who does history, general characteristics, food pairings, and fast facts for you yeah. to take away. Awesome. So she's a wealth of knowledge. If you want to learn more about wine, please check out either their website or their podcast, or of course you can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Dracina Wines. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Josiology. Be sure to visit Josiology.com to access the show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. To join the conversation, Find us on Facebook or Instagram with username at Josiology Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.